the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast. I'm Laura Slattery and on the show this week we'll be discussing NAMA and football. Later we'll be chatting to public affairs correspondent Colm Keena and soccer correspondent Emmett Malone about the goings-on behind the scenes at Bray Wanderers Football Club. But first, we're joined by business affairs correspondent Mark Paul and business editor John McManus to talk about state assets agency NAMA. It's been back in the headlines again this week after it merged its facing a lawsuit over the sale of properties in Prague. Mark, can you talk us through this story? Um, well, effectively, NAMA can't, uh, can't seem to stay out of the headlines at the moment, but this time um, and the story is in Prague. Um, um, Bally, Sean Mulryan, one of the most uh, high-profile and, and brashest developers during the boom years, um, his company, Ballymore, acquired six buildings in Prague, a uh, city centre, around an area known as Wenceslas Square. Now, anybody who's been on a, a weekend in Prague or a stag weekend will know Wenceslas Square. It's um, sort of the retail hub and, and tourist hub and a lot of nightclubs and, and, and bars are in that region as well. Um, and, and Ballymore's plan was to combine all of these buildings into a big shopping mall called Sovereign Palace, um, based around this old um, um, Baroque building uh, in, in, in the middle of the square. Um, now, of course, Sean uh, Moran uh, is now a client of NAMA. And he has to sell down a lot of his stuff in order to pay back his loans, and he's withdrawing from that part of Europe. Um, um, so Sovereign Palace has come up for sale in the last number of months. Um, now, there was a, a, another a Czech development company called Flow East, um, which it believed it had exclusive rights to negotiate to, uh, to buy Sovereign Palace from Ballymore. Um, it should be noted, by the way, that NAMA let Ballymore sell Sovereign Palace itself. It let it run the process. Um, and NAMA said it didn't want to, uh, uh, it, it didn't want to have control over it. Um, so Flow East uh, believed it had an exclusive contract to buy Sovereign Palace um, and was then uh, uh, told the night before bids were due in that uh, effectively it was being dropped from the roster and that it didn't go through to the next round. Now, it believed that it had a deal to buy it for about €81.5 million, Euros, um, um, uh, a verbal agreement, and then uh, it believed that it had a written agreement to have talks on its own. So it's, um, it's quite upset about this whole matter. It thinks it was pushed out of the process in favour of other bidders. Um, and uh, it's launched two lawsuits in Prague, one of which NAM is named in as a defendant, and it's also threatening lawsuits here in Dublin. So it's another situation where um, uh, somebody who wanted to buy a NAM asset and was unable to buy it um, um, has questions over the process and how the process was run, uh, and has resorted to the courts in order to get some sort of, uh, of as they would see it, recompense. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll come to some of uh, Flow East's objections uh, in a minute now. But first, can you tell us um, something about the winning bidder in this case? Winning bidder is a, is a, a Czech company called uh, Crestel. Crestle Developments. It's backed. Um, it's backed by uh, 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 big financial uh, institutions. Um, Crest's Crestle's uh, chief operating officer is a gentleman by the name of Simon Johnson, who's a former Ballymore um, head of Ballymore in Slovakia. So effectively, Ballymore has chosen Crestle to buy this. Um, and, and, and Ballymore has chosen to sell it to a company that is uh, partially run by a former Ballymore executive. So you can see um, 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 you know, where, where people's suspicions are raised and so on, especially seen as, as, as Ballymore ran the process itself. Um, so look, Crestle has agreed to pay in the region of about 83 million euros. 
Um, now, Flow East um, wrote to Nama last week and said, you know, we will pay more than than uh, than than Cressel. Come what may was the, was the words they used. We will pay the highest price. Come what may, but Nama is refusing to engage with them, even though Flow East says it's prepared to pay more money, which obviously would would mean more money for the Irish taxpayer, or in terms of, uh, you know, kind of defraying the loan, the Nama loans. Um, so it's uh, it's again, it, it's it's likely that this will be decided in the courts somewhere, whether in Prague or whether in Dublin, because of course Flow East also has the option of trying to injunct a sale from Dublin as well, um, and which it may try and do. Um, and now NAMA, for its part, says, look, um, the process has nothing to do with us. Um, and we didn't decide who the bidders were. We don't want anything to do with any of your lawsuits. Um, and stop writing to us, effectively, was what they told Flow East. Um, and Ballymore, for its point, um, says that uh, Flow East was, was taken out of the process because, according to Ballymore, um, Flow East didn't have enough financial backing. So there's a dispute over that end of things, and um, um, what Flo East is alleging is that an executive from Ballymore rang its financial backer the night before the bids were due in and effectively told it that there was no point in it um, and backing Flo East's bid, that it wasn't going to get through, and um, Flo East is arguing that uh, that disrupted its bid. Now, uh, Flo East says that it, it has since acquired a new financial backer, so it should be let back into the process. So the process isn't over yet. Um, Cressel hasn't finally sealed the deal um, but uh, Flow East is doing its best to, uh, to, 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 to prevent that happening and to get back into the process itself and the courts will have to decide it. So the gist of the story is that the Savarin Palace project, a fairly um, prestigious uh, project in, in, in Prague, was being sold by Ballymore mm. um, to a company, Crestel, mm. uh, that employs one of its former executives, whilst at the same time there was an underbidder uh, that feels um, strongly that they were unfairly cut out of the process. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, when you say underbidder, it sort of um, it, it raises a notion that, that they were going to pay less. They say they would have paid more than Cressel. Um, and the language that they have used uh, in, in their public statements on this is, we will pay the highest price come what may. So it's it, it, it's about whether or not the, the process was transparent um, um, and whether or not NAMA has actually achieved the best result for Irish taxpayers, because that, of course, is its mandate. That's what it's supposed to do. Um, but it let Ballymore run the process itself. And, and, and when you do that, I think think it, uh, it sometimes raises questions over the transparency of the process. Okay, um, John McManus, uh, business editor, is also with us here today. Um, John, um, you know, why, why was this process being handled by Ballymore in the first place? I mean, should, should NAMA have delegated it to them? Uh, in, a, in, a, um, in a word, and with hindsight, no, but... Um, NAMA obviously take the view that they they have to operate commercially. They're a massive organisation. They have thousands of assets to sell, to sell, and in certain circumstances, they would feel that it's better to get the um, the owner of the asset or, or the or the debtor, as it was in this case, to sell to sell the asset or the loans. And um, that's um, and there's risks involved in that. And uh, the sort of issues that are, are that are alleged in this case highlight the sort of issues the, the risks you run. Uh, uh, in the normal way, a commercial entity could could just take a view that that in the long run, over the totality of it, it's worth running those risks. A state agency can't really operate like that. Um, you know, they are an arm of the state, so they can't they 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 can't find themselves in a situation where it looks as though they are possibly the beneficiary or the loser out of a, a sale that wasn't run properly, which is the, the the heart of this this allegation and. 
uh, and it's not a million miles away from from the uh, issue around Project Eagle in the north, where um, again now we're trying to say we um, we 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 sold the portfolio and what went on downstream, if you like, between the buyer and their advisors is really not any of our business. Again, it doesn't wash. You know, you're you're, you're the Irish state. You, if you do something, it has to be done properly because if you don't do something properly, then who who on earth will? And and there's another argument, of course, which is Mark's point, that it would look as though um, they may well have lost out here. Uh, if if right, the there's, there's there's 120 million euro owed in this loan, it's a, the the it, uh, it the asset looks like it's going to be sold for about about 83, maybe it'll get up to 85, which is um, and where Flowey says they will bid. So, um, you know, that's that, that's 35 million euros that uh, that taxpayers will be down on this deal. Um, and 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 in circumstances where that sort of money is at stake, um, the argument from one side goes. Um, well, perhaps NAMA should uh, take a more hands-on approach when it's selling these sort of things and not let um, not let debtors uh, sell the assets themselves. Because their position now, as as you uh, have mentioned, is that you know this is this is nothing to do with with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's effectively it. In, they're sort of they're sort of riding two horses. If you look at some of the correspondence that they've sent to Flow East, um, on the one hand they say it's not our process, we didn't run it, it's not our problem. Um, but on the other hand, they say, but from what we've seen of the process, the process that we don't run, um, from what we've seen of it, you don't have a case. Um, so they're sort of riding two horses with this one. But um, they're quite adamant that uh, that uh, effectively it's nothing to do with them. Um, and you know, they're, you know, it's 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 not the first, it's not the only example of of, of assets that that NAM assets that are being sold at the moment, where it's allowing the debtors uh, to, to to take the reins. So where I mean, Millennium Park, uh, a big business park down just on the outside of of Nace and Kildare. Um, that's currently in, in the final stages of negotiations uh, to be sold for somewhere north of 35 million euros. Again, that's another one where the developers who built that park um, and were allowed to sell it themselves. Um, even though one has to assume that, that when the sale goes through, whatever outstanding loans there are will be written off. Um, so, um, um, you know, NAMA, for as long as NAMA lets debtors sell high profile assets themselves in situations where, um, you know, NAMA really has an interest in getting the highest price possible. Um, um, it's going to leave itself open to these sort of criticisms. And and when the actual purchaser is uh, connected, even tangentially, to 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 the debtor, it um, you know it just doesn't look right, does it? To say the least. And uh, the 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 trade off in AMR, of course, is between you can't micromanage all of these sales, but there are obviously some where perhaps you need to micromanage them. So is this story um, about the the Prague lawsuit? Is it you know bad timing for NAMA given the story about the sale of, of Project Eagle in Northern Ireland is still rumbling on? Well, it's it's not good timing, and uh, it's interesting that a lot of these things or these stories, Mark referred to the Millennium Park um, sale as well, all seem to be tumbling out now as NAMA is coming close to the finishing line, and uh, you you could uh, wonder as to whether or not now they're under pressure to have themselves wrapped up in the next couple of years, whether they are, are um, you know, uh, getting a bit sloppy, to put it, uh, to, to, to put it mildly, in terms of uh, the processes. They just want to get a lot of stuff sold and um, 
You know, and, and, and Nama, of course, obviously has its own personnel issues in the sense that you know Nama would have hired at the time a lot of highly qualified financial and property professionals who, when the crash came, well, a lot of them had nowhere else to work really, didn't they? Because the industry had died, mm. so they went to work in the workout vehicle instead. Now a lot of those people are being cherry picked, um, and when the when the comeback came in commercial property, um, a lot of people who who were working in Nama for very good money were plucked back into the private sector for even better money. Um, so Nama uh, has has replaying, re- complained repeatedly. In, in, in the last year or so that it is it is short and highly qualified staff and um, it's losing its best staff and um, so in a sense it's losing some of its ability to oversee a lot of these projects um, to oversee the sale of them so um, um, in situations like if you take Sean Mulryan the, the Ballymore developer who has worked very closely with NAMA he hasn't had a single row with them um, as far as anyone knows they let his company oversee the, the, the process itself and it obviously thinks it's safe to do that. And, you know, people are only human, and if you were working in NAMA now, um, you'd be thinking about your next job, and that would act as a as a check, perhaps, wouldn't it, on you being, um, you know, in your dealings with the, 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 the vendors? And that is, you know, that sounds a little bit worrying from a value for money for taxpayers' point of view. Well, it does. I mean, it's... it's, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, not surprising, and it's perhaps arguably unavoidable, but that doesn't relieve the management of NAMA from the the obligation to uh, to try and mitigate it. All right, um, I think we'll leave it there. So today, uh, thanks very much to Mark Paul, business affairs correspondent, and to business editor John McManus. At Irish Life, we can tell you that forty nine percent of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. Now, Bray Wanderers Football Club has been in news lately, not for what is happening on the pitch, but off it. Last week, the owners were granted temporary injunctions that prevented three men from entering the club's premises at Carlisle Grounds. The three ended up in court after a protest at the club's grounds that is related to a change in ownership at the club. Here to discuss the case is Colm Keener, our public affairs correspondent and soccer correspondent, Emmett Malone. Colm, coming to you first, tell us the background to this story. Well, the background to the story is that the Bray Wanderers uh, football club is in severe financial difficulties, uh, as are many uh, of the soccer clubs around the country. And uh, it's it's, uh, former shareholders have sold the club, or the majority of them have sold the club to new owners, and some of the shareholders involved um, are unhappy with with this development and are concerned that the new owners uh, might uh, be more interested in developing the, the Carlisle grounds, uh, the grounds called Carlisle um, in Bray, rather than uh, developing the club. The new owners of the club say there's no um, there's no truth in this at all. But this led to the to the um, protest outside the grounds uh, on Saturday before the game against Derry. And, um, and then to approach the courts to have the people involved uh, prevented from doing so in the future. Um, they've agreed not to do it again, but uh, 
they, 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 they can attend matches. So tell me, first of all, um, who was who John Deering? He's one of the three, isn't he? Yeah, John Deering is a former shareholder of the um, of the uh, of Bray Wanderers. Or sorry, he is a shareholder of Bray Wanderers, and um, he's been very uh, um, concerned about developments. Um, one of the things he did, uh, which which, which uh, emerged uh, as a result of the court case, was he he lodged some documents with the um, with the company's registry office. Um, Essentially, appointing himself as director of the club, and uh, and and causing other directors of the club to be uh, to resign or to be to be registered as having resigned, and um, these documents were apparently accepted at face value by the company's registration office, and then having filed these documents, he used his notification of directorship uh, at the protest to 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 uh, tell the guards that he was he was a director of the club. And also, prior to that, he got the uh, email uh, codes or um, passwords for uh, email addresses associated with the club changed by Aircom uh, using his the fact that he was a director of the thing and got some information about the uh, about the club uh, and its new owners uh, through that method. And he's now given a commitment that he won't uh, access their server anymore. Because that is a quite an unusual sequence of events in the business world, isn't it? Yes, and it's it, it's an extraordinary uh, sequence of events, and um, so there is a lot of rumor and counter rumor and claims and, and and otherwise going on about uh, what's happened with the ownership of Bray Wanders, um, but those involved in the um, in the takeover say that they have um, taken over the club because they have long term interests. Uh, at heart, and there's no possibility of their uh, using the grounds uh, to make a, a property play because the grounds are, are um, subject to a sporting lease. The, the club only has access to the grounds or use of the grounds from the council as long as they're using them uh, for sporting uh, reasons. They don't actually own the grounds at all. So another um, person who has a starring role in this saga is a man named Dennis O'Connor. Can you tell us who he is? Yeah, it's one of the fascinating aspects of the um, of the story. the The new owners are, are have their shareholding by way of a company called Millway Dawn, and uh, the eighty percent owner of that is a man called Jerry Mulvey, who's had a, an involvement in St Patrick's Athletic before, and and other uh, soccer ventures. Um, the twenty percent shareholder uh, is Dennis O'Connor, who's also as of. Uh, I think February of this year, the chairman of Bray Wanderers, and um, Dennis O'Connor uh, featured uh, quite a bit in the Moriarty Tribunal um, uh, in relation to uh, a football company in uh, in England, Doncork, Doncaster Rovers Football Club Limited, which the tribunal was investigating because it thought that perhaps Michael Lowry and Dennis O'Brien were both. Uh, somehow involved with this club, which had a stadium which it wanted to uh, abandon and, and redevelop into uh, for commercial reasons, and uh, and building a new uh, stadium outside of town. So uh, the way Mr. O'Connor got involved in this was he um, he was the tribunal thought he was helping them uh, throw more light on Mr. Lowry's affairs. He was Mr. Lowry's accountant, but it subsequently transpired that uh, Mr. O'Connor was um, 
having contacts with people who had information that might or might not be relevant to this issue and negotiating payments to these people, to this person up in Northern Ireland. And the tribunal uh, severely criticised uh, Mr O'Connor uh, in its final report and said that these payments had been made so that um, certain information would or would not be given to the tribunal. And just to finish that all off, um, Mr O'Brien, Dennis O'Brien, said the Doncaster Rovers Football Club Limited was his and had nothing to do with Michael, Michael Lowry. Uh, the tribunal thought that that was probably the case, but at some stage, perhaps they had some other notion in mind. So Mr O'Connor is somebody who has an interesting business history with connections to football in the past yeah, it's, as well. Yeah, it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. I, I don't think he has any other, as far as I'm aware, any other involvement in in soccer activities. And so people who are concerned about what's happening at Bray Wanderers are, are uh, saying, well, look at what emerged at the Moriarty Tribunal. This fellow wa- was involved in activities for which he was severely criticised by the tribunal and involved a, a football stadium that that people wanted to redevelop as a kind of a property play. But uh, Mr uh, O'Connor has uh, issued public statements saying there's no such uh, attempt involved in the in the ownership of Bray Wanders and that uh, anyhow the lease is a sporting lease from the council and um, that they, they, they only have possession of the grounds as long as they're playing football there. Okay, coming to you, Emmett Malone. Um, there's been um, a fair amount of drama at Bray Wanderers yeah. over the past year, and uh, managers have resigned. There's been a lot of disquiet. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, it's traditionally a club that that was quite stable. Uh, the Sevens were there. They were local businessmen who supported the club over a great many years. Uh, it was almost unique, and it had you know huge stability at team management level with Pat Devlin, who was there you know many many years. Uh, left, came back again, you know, was a shareholder in the club himself and was, was sort of kind of independently wealthy, I think, you know, in footballing terms. He had he had kind of acted as a as an agent or an advisor to the likes of Shea Given and, and Damien Duff and, uh, and you know, it's, it's believed made quite a lot of money out of those deals. So, you know, he wasn't hugely dependent on the salary that he would have been getting from uh, from Bray Wanderers. So it was, the, the funny thing is that this happens against the background of a club that was, you know, hugely stable and, and, and viewed with, with, with great regard within the game here because generally it wasn't associated with the sort of kind of um, uh, huge swings in fortunes that you see in other clubs. Um, Ray Wanders was a club that didn't spend a lot of money. It didn't aspire to an awful lot. The, the idea was to be in the in the Premier uh, Division, but um, but they, they were relegated on a number of occasions and, and appeared to survive that without any great drama, which, you know, bigger clubs or more ambitious clubs would sometimes uh, go close to folding when that happened. And uh, they, won a, they won an FAI Cup along the way in the early 90s. 90s and uh, you know they were they were a nice club they were a kind of solid club and um, seen as a family club and uh, you know lots and lots of positives about it but what was happening you know along the way as as tends to happen at so many of these clubs is they were losing money and um, uh, it's very difficult to to uh, make money out of League of Ireland football uh, and it's pretty difficult to even break even at it and um, the Slevins were subsidising this there were a number of other people involved guy Eddie Cox who was chairman over many years um, uh, but none of these were hugely wealthy, and I think that the burden of you know supporting the club on an ongoing basis, uh, you know, became I guess either they ran out of patience or they ran out of money. I'm not entirely sure which, uh, but there was this move to kind of look around for other backers, and I think they did that in the best possible way. They they tried to pass on the the, the club to people who would support it, and and that would be a, a, a again a natural enough uh, model within the league um, uh, for for you know for the better owners that that simply kind of feel they've had enough and and they look around for a, a, a benefit factor to take over. 
um, in this case, the McGettigans were, were, were to come in, and somehow in the you know in the few months after the McGettigans, uh, who owned the you know the, the Royal Hotel in Bray, amongst other things, um, were coming in, we've seen it all go wrong. Um, now you know, and that's not a comment on, on Dennis O'Connor, who I hear comments uh, talking about it there. He obviously has as as a lot uh, quite a history to him. There is claim and counterclaim out there about what people's motives are or whatever, but certainly the kind of smooth transition element of it, it is beyond dispute, has come badly off the rails. At this stage, there are, you know, there are a lot of accusations being batted around about what people are at. Obviously, they've ended up in the high court, which for a club like uh, Bray, apart from anything else, is a financial catastrophe in and of itself. And uh, and there is this suspicion that the whole thing is, um, uh, is a property play. And, you know, uh, people within the league, people who've supported clubs for for many years, or people like myself who've covered the league for many years, you know, become suspicious when people who have no great grounding or no grounding at all in football um, become involved in League of Ireland clubs. Because, as I say, you know, aside from the grounds that they play in, um, there's no real opportunity to make money. And Dennis O'Connor has said that this isn't a property play, that he sees the club as having great potential to push on and achieve great success or whatever. That's not what Bray has been about. It's not a very well-supported club. It's difficult to see how he's going to make that work. People who knew a lot more about football than him have failed to make it work in the past. And so people are suspicious. And that's where we are now. Yeah, I mean, there has been property plays in Irish football before now, hasn't there? They haven't gone terribly well. No, no. Uh, you know, look, uh, there's been a number down the years. I mean, a number of clubs, you know, going way back have moved off uh, control of their grounds and they've been sold uh, either from under them or, you know, occasionally they, they sold them. And one of the great things, one of the great stabilizing factors, and it's an embarrassing thing to say about the League of Ireland, but one of the great stabilizing factors of the League of Ireland is that so few of the clubs actually own their own grounds. And uh, this, you know, they, they haven't been in a position to sell them. You know, a great many of them owned by local league sides or the council or, you know, um, uh, by in trusts or whatever, you know, it's, it, there, there are various ownership structures, but you know, not too many of them have, have really controlled the ground, and therefore, this, the, you know, there haven't been more of these. There haven't been too many more of them. But if you look back over the boom years when there was a, you know, a lot of excitement about the, the, the gaining uh, values of, of development properties in Dublin and, uh, and elsewhere, the, the three ones that would stand out would be Bohemians, who did a deal with Liam Carroll, uh, Shelburne, who did a deal with Jerry O'Reilly, and Broad United. The, the, the name of the developer there escapes me. It's quite quite a substantial developer as well and and in all three cases that went really badly wrong for 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 you know to varying degrees but it went badly wrong for everyone concerned bohemians won a few league titles and their fans were delighted for a while on the money that carol was advancing them um uh, uh, you know it, it, on the deal uh, but ultimately uh, carol um it became very much embroiled in in uh, major legal action over some very small parcels of land connected with the deal and, and bohemians didn't seem to have covered themselves in glory um carol uh, you know, dragged out the deal on, to a point then when he simply didn't have the wherewithal completed because so many other things were going wrong on him. Uh, Jerry O'Reilly, it's still, you know, he still controls the lease of land. There are similarities with Shelburne and Bray Wanderers in that there again, the ultimate owner of the land is the local authority and it's uh, rented out on a sporting lease. But Jerry O'Reilly 
was going to build on it. There was a, a, an expectation that the land would be rezoned and, uh, and planning permission would be granted. And Shelburne were ultimately going to be paid on the basis of the density of the um, uh, uh, planning permission that was uh, that was granted. Uh, it too dragged out. Again, Shelburne won league titles based on money that they got in advance, uh, but but all of it ran out in the end. Um, O'Reilly and his partners were very very kind of uh, generous owners. I think you know you would have to say in the way that they treated Shelburne. He could really have put them out of business effectively a long, long time ago, but uh, that continues to drag on to this day. O'Reilly is in Nama. There are talks going on behind the scenes there. Dublin City Council want to regain control of the ground. It was tied up in a, in, um, in a, a proposed ground share with Bohemians at, at uh, Daily Mount, which has just been bought by Dublin City Council. But both clubs came, you know, very close to uh, going out of existence because of this. And Draw Day United too, you know, had to be saved by its fans. You had kids auctioning their toys in their front garden up there to save the club. It was pathetic stuff a few years ago. Uh, but again, what happened was that the club, you know, staked everything in, a, you know, on, on moving to an out of uh, an out of town location. There was going to be a kind of retail park built around it. Uh, very impressive plan, ten thousand seat old stadium, lovely stuff. But you know, one of the key elements here that is common in all of these cases is that, you know, the hunger for success on the field is so great that nobody ever waits for any of this to actually happen for the, for the new stadium to be built. People invest money in the team up front, the money gets spent. When the deal doesn't go through then or the, the building project collapses, the club gets left in awful trouble. That happened in the other three cases. All three clubs are kind of rebuilding uh, after very, very turbulent periods. And one of the things that worries people about Bray Wanderers actually is that the very thing that should be winning the fans over is Dennis O'Connor going on television and saying that he wants to spend a lot of money on the team and to invest heavily to uh, to improve the team's fortunes, to get them up the, to the table to achieve success. This doesn't strike anyone as particularly sustainable in this case. And there may or may not be a property play down the way, but in the meantime, it doesn't sound like a guy who entirely is on top of what a business plan should look like for a middle-ranking League of Ireland club. So I was going to ask you there um, if we have a sense of who um, Bray supporters might be behind in this case. Is it O'Connor or Deering or, or is it that simple? Yeah, I don't think it is too simple. I, I think that they're, you know, I, I think the Bray fans are trying to figure out who they can trust. As I say, they're, they're very used to it being um, very quiet out there, uh, you know, very soft guys behind the club, people they knew they could trust. And at the moment, what they're terrified of is, uh, is where this is going to go. Nobody knew Dennis O'Connor really in, in League of Ireland circles before he came into Bray. Uh, he has said a lot of positive things, you know, I mean, and, and if he can be believed or, you know, if the Bray Wanderers fans did believe him, then, you know, there, there probably wouldn't be such a problem. But there are suspicions about where this is going because to the average League of Ireland fan, what is being proposed here just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Okay, um, coming to you, Column. Um, I mean, where do you see this going next? I mean, would would you expect a property play down the line, or or, or is it too early to tell? Well, I, I don't know. Is the the, uh, the short answer for that? I know Jerry Mulvey, it seems, has a has a has a track record of developing clubs. Sorry, yeah. If I could just cut in there uh, and say that Jerry Mulvey first came to the notice of people in the League of Ireland uh, when he bought uh, into St Patrick's Athletic. At that stage, he had already made a profit of over ten million euro 
on a land sale for development. He had a, a you know a, a slight history of involvement in football, but again, when he went into St Patrick's Athletic, the expectation was that the club would move out a uh, ground share, possibly with Shamrock Rovers, and and sell Richmond Park. Um, uh, you know that that didn't happen in the end, but it partly didn't happen, I think, because Gareth Keller came in, and Gareth Keller at the time was a very wealthy man, and he uh, you know was had other plans. I think he wanted to develop uh, St Patrick's Athletic as a community club, and he was prepared to um, kind of you know consolidate the very complicated ownership structure that existed at St Patrick's Athletic at the, at the time, and which may, I think, it's fair to say, have kind of slowed uh, Jerry Mulvey's uh, progress on, on on doing something like that because there were there were all sorts of clouds of shares. It's not, it's not a million miles from the situation that prevails at Bray Wanderers. It was very complicated ownership and there were fans who owned um, shares who were very reluctant to sell because they feared for what would become of, of Richmond Park. But when Garrett Keller came in, I mean, that is the, 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 you know, the sort of example that you can look at that what happens. I mean, Garrett Keller was a property developer but nobody believed he was going to redevelop um, uh, Richmond Park or build on it for you know for residential or whatever. He, people believed that this was a guy who had the club's best interest at heart, and 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 you know long term small shareholders sold to him on that basis. Calm is is Bray a viable club uh, as it's being run at the moment? Do we know if if well, it can survive? I'm told it, it's not a viable club, and that's really part part of the reason why the it's former shareholders sold to new shareholders for a very small amount of money. Um, you know, it, it was about to close down um, as a trouble paying the bills, and uh, it got an immediate cash injection. I think of about fifty thousand euros from the from the new investors. So at the moment, it's not a it's not a, a, a viable club, and a lot of the clubs essentially are, as I understand, they're not viable. And one of the solutions you can have to the troubles of uh, League of Ireland clubs is to do some sort of deal with their grounds. Um, you know, develop them in some way that they create an income stream from rental, from buildings on the on the on beside a stadium or moving moving sites as part of some deal. Um, so it's probably a, a good idea to do it uh, for um, for financial reasons, commercial reasons, and then on the other side you have people's um, uh, emotional attachments to, to their old grounds, the Carlisle grounds in Bray are lovely. A lovely site beside a dart station, beside a sea, and so on. So, uh, you know, what, which which is the right way? I think, from a commercial point of view, yeah, the only thing they've got going for them is using the grounds, even though they're not their grounds. But you know, if perhaps some sort of arrangement could be come to with the council, that some sort of building development there would accommodate a football pitch, or else they'd move somewhere else as part of an overall deal that would release some money to the club. Something like that seems like the most likely uh, commercial road to go down. Another, the Carlisle Grounds are in a lovely spot and, um, I mean, you, perhaps you could have more events there um, that would that would create uh, uh, an income, you know, concerts or whatever, something like that. So even though there's a lot of scepticism about, you know, what the new owners plan to do, there is maybe perhaps a possibility that they will have to do something. Well, they have to do something because otherwise they can't they can't pay the bills, or unless they have somebody who wants to just pump money into the into the club and without any expectation of getting it back. Emmet, are these uh, are these problems at Bray? Are they indicative of of what's going on now at Irish football clubs? Yeah, I mean, they are largely. I mean, a column says, you know, there that uh, ultimately uh, they have to do something or they have to find people who are willing to... uh 
uh, pump money into the club without getting it back. Well, I mean, that's been a pretty classic business model for uh, League of Ireland clubs and, and for football clubs around the world, really. Um, yeah. uh, they, they, You know, you find a, be- a benefactor, um, uh, they pump a lot of money in, whether it's uh, whether it's uh, Roman Abramovich at Chelsea putting in a billion euro or as a pub owner down the country um, putting, uh, putting a, a few thousand quid into his, his local junior club. Um, the reality is that that's the way it works a lot of the time and there's a certain amount of kudos in it for, for some people or they, you know, if they're rich enough, they view it as a, um, uh, 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 as a hobby. I mean, the guy who, who runs Hoffenheim Football Club, a Bundesliga club, I think they'll play in Europe this year, is the owner of SAP. Uh, he's a multi-billionaire and um, he just decided his old local club, which at the time wasn't a whole lot bigger than Bray Wanderers. Um, you know, uh, we needed to save them from going down into the eighth division and uh, and as he got more and more involved, he just kept pumping money in and now they're, now they're one of the biggest clubs in Germany. So, yeah, these things they have a weird way of happening. Um, I think there's a bigger problem, a wider problem in, in Irish football in that, you know, a number of clubs are kind of making some progress and um, there are they are exploring a number of business models, one of which is, you know, a kind of uh, either idealistic or cynical, depending on which way you look at it, the model of, of developing uh, developing young players and uh, selling them on. Um, this is a key part of the economics for, for, you know, quite a few clubs across Europe. Um, there's obviously various attempts to improve uh, facilities to generate match day income to generate other incomes but the league as it's as a whole has a problem in that it is operating at quite a, a low level and no one club can uh, in and of itself you know change that um, you have somebody like Garrett Keller whose fortunes are, are, are being revived now and he's still backing uh, St. Patrick's Athletic well notionally he could put a lot of money into St. Patrick's Athletic and build it up you know but other than winning the league year after year and competing in Europe you know that, that that would not really change the, the club's fortunes on the domestic front. Um, what we need here is the league as a whole to improve dramatically and start uh, attracting crowds again. And you know that you know you can make arguments about how that might happen, and you know the you know, but it requires a lot of investment up front. And that investment simply isn't there at the moment. And, you know, it, it, it requires a lot of kind of things to come together on a lot of fronts. And, and you know, that people have been talking about all those things for 25 years and, and we're still waiting really since, since the, you know, the crowds, t- you know, tailed, finished tailing off in, well, I don't know, the late 80s as, 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 or 90s as, uh, as, as the, the market just became completely saturated with, um, with more and more uh, football coming in on satellite channels from abroad. The bottom line is that uh, it's very difficult for these clubs even to play their games now when they're not up against uh, a much bigger, you know, uh, not notionally appealing game on television. Whether it used to be just England, now it's Spain, Italy, Germany. There is always a big game on. The identification of young kids with you know uh, stars at Barcelona and Milan and stuff, you know, is is rising all the time. And uh, and these clubs, you know, are, are are being pushed to the margins more and more. Uh, to reverse that trend is 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 a really big ask. All right. Thanks very much, Emmett Malone and Calm Kina. Um, That's it for this week's uh, edition of the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast. My thanks to all our contributors today, to sound engineer JJ Vernon, and Inside Business is produced by Sinead O'Shea. You can find all our business stories, features and analysis on irishtimes.com slash business and on our various apps. Until next week, goodbye.